Welcome to the podcast of Hemisphere, the official journal of the European Hematology Association. Hemisphere's podcast presents insightful, expert discussions about recent hematology publications. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to this episode of the Hemisphere podcast. My name is Stephen Hibbs, and I'm a hematologist and clinical research fellow based at Queen Mary University of London, and I'm one of the scientific editors for Hemisphere. So today I'm joined by Adrian and Juan Carlos, who are both hematologists based in Spain, and they've recently published a hemisphere paper entitled Machine Learning Improves Risk Stratification in Myelofibrosis, an analysis of the Spanish registry of myelofibrosis. And I'm really glad today to have them join us both to hear specifically about this study, but also to think about machine learning more widely and its potential to change practice. So my first question is to Adrian. Um, I'd like to ask you, how did you first come across the method of machine learning? Well, this is a quite an interesting question. Uh, as a clinician, but also trained in diagnostics and bioinformatics, I had quite a good idea about the need uh, for um, improved prognostication based on uh, further parameterization of the of the data of of patients. So, um, uh, eventually, uh, the solution came out of artificial intelligence. So, when you are trying to think about uh, developing complex models that can, that can accommodate uh, complex data from many patients into a single score, then you need some uh, robust statistical technique. And this can be uh, traditional uh, regression models such as Cox, but also uh, others based on, on machine learning, such as this one, which is based on random forest. So it is interesting. And probably the nice part of this is that uh, you can pick a uh, large heterogeneity uh, in patient uh, uh, evolution over time and, and use that to create a single prognostic score that is quantitative. It's not uh, a prognostic score uh, based on different groups uh, and therefore the precision is higher and the uncertainty of the predictions uh, are lower than the traditional scoring methods. And for those of us who are kind of new to this um, idea of machine learning, and I've got to admit, it's, it's something that when I've tried to read about it in the past has often seemed quite confusing. Would you be able to just kind of describe in simple terms what machine learning is and perhaps give an example of where it's been applied in a completely different medical context? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, so there is a broad field of artificial intelligence, and uh, this is quite interesting because uh, the AI specialists don't like the term artificial intelligence. So uh, we have to start from the point that uh, even these experts don't consider th this is a, a clear field because there is no clear definition of what intelligence is. So assuming that artificial intelligence are all these devices that simulate human cognitive activities such as learning and problem solving, then we have several subfields into uh, artificial intelligence. And, and the, the broadest one uh, is uh, machine learning. And um, this is uh, has become quite common recently because in machine learning, uh, you have uh, uh, as many applications as your imagination can limit you. And uh, the idea is to train predictors to identify even um, some hidden layers or hidden variables, sorry, in your data. This is unsupervised machine learning or to uh, be capable of predicting some uh, some class or some variable that you know well about of. 
such as uh, survival. And this is what we did actually in this paper. And there is a big interest in, in machine learning. And this has been even um, broadened by the uh, implementation of chat GPT. So chat GPT, the, the GPT is a generate generative pre-trained transformer. And this is a complex uh, a system that mix uh, uh, that um, is based on machine learning, but also on traditional uh, mathematics, mm -hmm. and and this has led to the uh, in in machine learning. But this is probably more uh, on a very different field because uh, uh, ChatGPT has been developed to uh, simulate uh, human language and human conversation. However, in, in our field, we are working on, on predicting patient outcomes better to better risk stratified patients and uh, to better uh, predict in some cases drug response to differential drug response in different onco-hematological tumors. So um, the field uh, is quite different actually. So uh, one, when one thinks about artificial intelligence, uh, you have to keep in mind that there are very different uh, uh, domains of applicability, and this requires not just a lot of information or a lot of uh, knowledge about the field, but also a lot, a lot of knowledge about the field you want to apply it to. It wouldn't make very much sense to do this work, for example, without the involvement of um, of uh, experts in myelofibrosis, such as Juan Carlos, who is here with us. So just just so I think, just so I check I understood. So in simple terms. Comparing sort of, I guess, traditional development of a prognostic score would be humans trying out all sorts of different regression models to say, let's put in this and this and this and see how well it fits. And here you're giving a computer the chance to do all those experiments for you and to say, you know, please, please try out these variables and find what what has the best fit. But there's there's kind of more autonomy given to the to the computer to to to, to do all of those different experiments so would, would that be a fair a fair summary yeah yeah we try to limit the human intervention into the development of the score so it is not biased by our preconceived ideas about the prognostic uh, factors in in myelofibrosis and this has led indeed to to some interesting discoveries that we can further discuss later on but uh, the idea is basically to to uh, uh, be capable of implementing in a card way these artificial intelligence tools, so as to avoid too much human inference during the uh, tuning of the of the algorithm, and then to be capable of making an interpretation of the results. And the nice thing is that. Uh, this is something you can also obtain with Cox regression, for example, but the, the risk prediction, uh, we didn't want to do uh, uh, closed uh, risk groups, uh, but rather a, a survival prediction. So we, we can extrapolate which will be the survival of a particular patient according to the prognostic information compared to the entire Spanish cohort of, of myelofibrosis in this case. And uh, we also took advantage of the fact that now we can uh, implement these techniques into in web interfaces and, and uh, anyone can use these web uh, developments to calculate the scores rapidly. 
which in the past was impossible. And therefore, the past risk scores that many hematologists uh, used to uh, um, to develop it, uh, were based on scoring systems. That's one point for uh, one variable, two points for other variable, etc. But that creates a lot of uncertainty in, in the predictions of some groups. And uh, in this way, by creating an individual risk score, uh, uh, an individual risk prediction that you can then uh, extrapolate into a survival cure, uh, the, the predictions appear to be much better. Mm. Thank you. So, Michael, a question for you then. Um, I know that one really crucial part of this study that made it possible was the really large Spanish registry of myelofibrosis patients. Would you be able to say a bit more about this and, and the sort of benefits that have come from, from having this registry? Yes, uh, thank you for the question. Actually, it is critical. Uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the, the, the Spanish MPN group, which is GenFin, and it was created in 2011. And the first thing we thought it was that it was important to have a, a registry of, the, uh, of all the patients with MPNs in Spain. So we started three registries with polycytemia, polycytemia vera, essential thrombocytemia, and myeloid fibrosis. We got Banned from Novartis at the beginning, but then these registries are not funded, so we get cash from educational uh, activities. So it is very researcher-guided uh, uh, registry. The industry does not take uh, part on our decisions. And now we have, uh, uh, for instance, in myelofibrosis, 1,800 patients included, which is one of the largest collections uh, of patients with this disease in the world, worldwide. And in the time, what we have done mainly is to try to assess the results of treatments in, in real life, treatments that are usually not even approved in, in myelofibrosis, but are commonly used, for instance, erythropoietin, dinosaur, or so on, steroids. And also, we've made a few contributions trying to validate prognostic scoring systems that were, were developed in, in centers of excellence. And this is what we have been doing. And uh, the good thing about this uh, registry that it has information from patients diagnosed from 2000 till present, and it is still going on, the, the registry. And we, maybe once a year, we send queries to the centers to try to improve the quality of the data. Although, of course, the, the physicians are the ones who enter the data in, in the registry, so there may be difference in the conceptions and, and things. So the quality of the data in this place could be quicker in some aspects, but uh, it is not biased. I mean, uh, all the patients that are diagnosed in any single center, if they want to put the patient here. So I would say that uh, 60 centers contribute to the Spanish MPN registry, 60. And let's say that 15, uh, 15 centers contribute more or less to half of the, the population of the registry. So they are big recruiters. But there are many centers that have included three, four, five patients or small, small centers. And I think this information, it is interesting because it gives you a real sense of, of the prognosis and the treatments of, of patients with this, with this disease. So it was, I think, a very interesting data set to be analyzed with, with new uh, techniques uh, like the one that Adrian and you and, and offer us at that time. So, so when you first heard about this and um, sort of the, the, the idea of machine learning and using it with this registry that you, you've been working on for some time, what was your hopes for what might 
um, what might emerge from this particular piece of, of research? I'll, I'll ask that to you first, Gwenikos. Yes, uh, actually, well, I'm, uh, I'm managing patients with myelofibrosis from the beginning to the all sorts of therapies, including transplantation. I also a transplant physician, and transplant is, is the only curative uh, treatment for this disease, but it's very toxic. The, the, the transplant rate mortality goes nearly to 30%, and this is one year after the procedure, in the first year. So it's, it is, a, you have something that is curative, but on the other side, it can, it can kill the patient. So the, the decision to send a patient to transplant in, in such a chronic disease, like with myelofibrosis, which is very heterogeneous, some patients live more than 10 years, 15 years, and others are relieved from the beginning. The decision has to be based on as much information, pronostic information as you have. And it is usually it's commonly said that in myelofibrosis, we have many more uh, scoring systems than patients, but actually, the reality is that they none of them works perfectly, of course, and you have to base your decision in the information that you have, which is not always complete. And the patient is in different clinical settings, not always in centers of excellence. And uh, you may not have cytogenetic studies because there is a dry tap, you don't have so. And so there, there is still a need for, for, for more uh, accurate tools. And I thought artificial intelligence could be one of those because it can give you an individualized prediction. And it takes into account what Adrian has said. Everybody knows that uh, the number of blasts in myelofibrosis is, is very important prognostic features. And in the scoring system, you have a cutoff of 1%, 2%, but it's not the same 2% or 5% or 10%. And while in this type of platform, you can account for these uh, important uh, pronostic uh, values. So I thought it was it was a good opportunity to try to test. I don't think this is the end of the road. Of course, we can improve this, but it, it was like a first experience in, in, in myelofibrosis. And I think it was very important, it was worth publishing it, although we have to struggle a little bit with the reviewers, I, I should say. <laughs> yeah, okay. And what about you, Adrian? When you were first kind of conceiving of this idea, what what did you hope would come from it? So uh, at least, uh, well, at, at the very very beginning, I thought this was an, a very interesting opportunity to work also with with the Spanish group. They are uh, a very professional group of of colleagues, and um, although I don't have so much experience in treating myelofibrosis because I, I'm clinically focused on on other lymphoid disorders, I, I thought this this could be a really interesting project because I perfectly knew that the scoring systems that uh, are traditionally used in myeloid disorders, but and also in lymphoid disorders, and even in myeloma, are, are working quite uh, suboptimally uh, because they don't exploit the full granularity of the data, and um, this uh, limits the reproducibility and the and the and creates great. Uh, uncertainty about uh, some predictions. And this is just to mention, for example, the patients with myeloma who are classified to the intermediate risk group uh, in the revised ISS, that they, they have huge heterogeneity in their outcomes. And this uh, happens over and over in different disorders. So we thought internally that this was a great opportunity to exploit 
simple information that is available to any hematologist taking care of any patient with myeloid fibrosis anywhere. You just need a hemogram and uh, a patient <laughs> to, to apply the, the model and to uh, create a new machine learning based uh, risk scoring system that uses data from uh, a very diverse background of centers. As uh, Juan Carlos mentioned, this is important because this is expected to be much closer to the reality of, of patients in the, in the, in the uh, universal healthcare system as compared to uh, only prognostic systems that are developed in very particular uh, centers. And, and the other thing uh, that I found very um, interesting at the very beginning was to uh, evaluate to what extent uh, was this mm, phenotypic information, because in myelofibrosis, you have a lot of information about the phenotype of the disease with a hemogram. So to what extent was this providing uh, information that could be overlapping with a genomic mutation? So uh, to what extent do we need the genomics to risk stratify patients or not? And this is obviously not a question of uh, no, yes or no, but there is some overlap that you can further exploit with the traditional and simple clinical or hemogram information that uh, is, was not currently being done. And, and this was another interesting uh, area of, of development that we thought could be of interest for many uh, physicians taking care of myelofibrosis patients around the globe. Just for um, listeners, um, just to clarify, the term hemogram is is, is a, a full blood count. Is that a, a, it's not a term I'm familiar with using. Yeah, sorry, it's that. <laughs> yeah, that's blood count. Full, full. And so sticking with you for a minute, Adrian, um, I'm going to ask you both this question. And Juan Carlos has already alluded to the difficulty, the kind of review process. But I, just kind of thinking about this whole project, I'll be interested to know what's been the most some challenging aspects of of seeing a project through like this from its initial conception through to through to getting it um published and and and, and beyond but what would you say has been the most difficult part for you Adrian the the, the first uh, interesting uh, point was an internal debate so uh with the hematologists involved in the in the Spanish group because uh, there is a need to do um change in mindset uh, that needs to be done progressively and with a lot of discussion so we can all get accustomed to use the same language and to accommodate our expectations about uh, the technology. And then uh, once we've done this, we started to work with the data, we obtained some interesting models and we started to, to uh, filter out some information that this is very important. I mean, you can't do this project without um, cooperating with the specialists in myelofibrosis because uh, some of the information in the database uh, was um, uh, had some limitations in its interpretability, and this is something that that needs to be accounted for. And then the I think once we uh, achieved the final model and we prepared the paper and submitted it. So the main uh, limitation that we found is the lack of available reviewers capable of. Uh, the, uh, making a high quality peer review of of such uh, type of 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 paper and this is not their fault i mean they are not prepared for machine learning yet so uh, probably the, the the people who are doing the, the greatest uh, developments in, in ai technologies are very all very young and however in in the medical world 
it is the other way around. So the the uh, seniors are the the leading um, uh, the leading um, key opinion leaders, the reviewers of the papers. So uh, there is a need to um, to develop some uh, kind of a specialized uh, information technology technology reviewers in this process, both to ensure that these papers are reviewed correctly. But also to ensure that they are not the results are real because uh, there, there can be some biases, uh, wrong uh, development of the of the um, machine learning models, etc. That that need to be accounted by by these specialized uh, uh, reviewers or uh, senior reviewers or whatever. Yeah, and anything you'd add to that, Ancolas, of kind of difficulties and challenges along the way with this project. So my part, I would say the first part, the first part would be the quality of the data because it was it uh, it includes a long period of time. So for instance, the criteria of diagnosis of myelofibrosis have changed over the time. For instance, the assessment of the bone marrow fibrosis criteria have also changed. So how we could analyze this and how could we say we have to think about how to analyze this type of, of data. Um, this was uh, one uh, particular problem. And the other one was uh, the, the kind of preconceptions that some reviewers have, and I also have as, as well. So we have the, the preconception that genomic data is crucial. And it seems that almost everything can be uh, uh, explained by the genomics. Although with trying to do this analysis, we, we noticed that also the, 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 the basic blood cell counts and the clinical characteristics also reflect the genomic data. And we had, for instance, information of driving mutations in 80% of the data set, 80%. And it was not uh, included in the final calculator because it did not add any additional information to the pronostic value of clinical hematologic parameters. And trying to understand this and trying to explain this to the reviewer was a tough a tough job, I think. And then, of mm -hmm. course, we have certain limitations. We didn't have information on, on additional somatic mutations in many patients. And I understand that this is a limitation of the study. But the first one, I mean, everything, everybody thinks, OK, if you have a calreticulid, myelofibrosis is the best prognosis, and you, it should be included in the model. But actually, we tried that, and it did not add anything to the model. With simple variables, without cutoffs, we were able to do uh, accurate predictions. And the first one who had to, to try to understand and digest this is what ourselves, I mean, myself as a clinician. Yes, that's fascinating. So I guess there's sort of, it's almost a challenge to some orthodoxy here really of, of everyone has got used to leaning quite heavily on genetic information. And after a while, I guess you develop a, a, a sort of strong attachment to, to that as, as being you know, definitely the way forward. And here, the humble, humble full blood count hemogram has, um, with some clever computing and, and mathematical modeling, done more heavy lifting. And yeah, it, it, it is it is a surprise. And I, I can see how that is a difficult, surprises are difficult, aren't they? <laughs> and so that, yeah. that's, that's fascinating. Um, so can I ask for, for you then, Juan Carlos, now you've got this model and you mentioned it, it's, it's the, it's the start. It's not. It's not the end of, of this this work. Does it change for you 
the either the, the decisions you're making or the conversations you're having with patients in clinic with this incredibly difficult decision about who you take to transplant or not or is are, are we not there yet for this being sort of practice changing for, for you well it's not a practice uh, changing but it is uh, another tool and i'm using this in the in the conversations that i have with, with my patients so i'm using definitely this this prognostic scoring system but uh, in our recommendation in the paper we said that at the time being uh, this this difficult decision should not be based in one scoring system you need to have uh, more information and in particular we still think that the molecular data uh, are important uh, particularly regarding the risk of acute transformation which is something that you should avoid uh, and if the patient is high risk try to avoid this uh, transformation and, and molecular data are, I think are important for that uh, purpose so I think in the future we should um, develop an, a kind of updated model uh, when all, all the patients have enough clinical and molecular data all the patients and then we, we try and we assess the, the real value, pronostic value of each of these uh, features. And I think this should be, should be done, I don't know in which uh, setting, but in the, in, the, in the next year. But we cannot say, okay, we are happy with the conventional pronostic models and, and that is, is enough. Because as Adrian said, I mean, this, this, this uh, technique gives you a lot of opportunities and we are watching every day in the radio and TV that is disrupting technology is changing the things and I think uh, we have given uh, readers a, a view of that and I'm applying it in clinical practice so, at this time. Thank you. So Adrian I just want to pick up one thing you'd said um, when you were talking about the review process here of the importance of having people who could um, look at this quite complicated work or, or, or complicated specific specialized work and I particularly wanted to touch on this idea of algorithmic fairness that um, we're aware increasingly that um, of social demographic disparities in people's outcomes. So depending on your socioeconomic status or your ethnicity or all sorts of other things that in theory shouldn't have much to do with your outcome. People's outcomes are different and how actually certain models in medicine can make that worse. So, so a, a sort of high profile example is about chronic kidney disease scoring. Um, and I've heard it said that with machine learning, that can be even harder to spot because the computer's doing so much of the work. You might end up with a model that is only fair or useful for some patients, but for others, actually, it, it, it doesn't work or it's not representative. Um, is this something that you've had any thoughts about in, in, in this area? So uh, I totally agree with, with your view because um, one of the things that you need to, to be very careful about with uh, AI tools is... Uh, overfitting to uh, the structure of your population uh, in the training cohort and, and the possibility of including some biases that you cannot account for. So th this can also happen with other uh, statistical tools, but this is not it's not so severe as with machine learning. So we, we actually introduced some uh, techniques to account for that, such as uh, cross-validation and uh, external or trained test split validation. And we are very happy because this uh, Italian group has recently reproduced the superiority of the prognostic scoring system compared to the IPSS. But uh, anyway, we need to be very aware about the possibility of, of uh, some um, uh, ex, um, 
some biases occurring in the in any tra uh, population. We believe that in this case, this should be minor. At least biases related to socioeconomic status are not so severe in Spain because as in other uh, parts of Europe, the healthcare system in Spain is public and we are incorporating data from very different backgrounds, from uh, small hospitals to large uh, academic hospitals that uh, we think represent the reality or, or uh, is very close to the reality of, of the myelofibrosis in a developed country. But we also need to take into account that, for example, uh, differences in, in, the, in, in, in treatment availability uh, will make it difficult for any model, not just this, but any model to externalize to another country. For example, um, from 2012 onwards, uh, these patients could be treated with JAK inhibitors. And maybe, maybe in other countries, in the second or, uh, or third or developing countries, sorry, these patients might not have access to, to JAK inhibitors. And therefore, the, the machine learning might be... Um, over or underestimating the risk of some of these patients be just because they don't have the availability of this drug. Because in Spain, if the patient um, pro progresses, you can add the JAK inhibitor and the patient will probably have a response and prolong his survival, but this might not be the same in other countries. So there, there are a lot of, of um, implications of these prognostic scores. And when trying to incorporate them into a different uh, environment, uh, at least uh, a very different country with a very different socioeconomic background, we might need to share not only the algorithm, but maybe the, the to share also methods so they, they can develop their own uh, prognostic scoring systems if this is of, of interest for them uh, with the data. Uh, that is representing their country, and and for example, another thing that that can have an impact for is the that these patients have a long survival normally, although very heterogeneous. Many of these patients live very longly, uh, uh, and uh, average life expectancy in Spain is huge. I mean, it, I think it's over eighty three or eighty four years, and uh, it's difficult to to know if this will generalize to uh, countries. Uh, there are uh, whose life expectancy is 10, 20, or even more years less. So these are things that need to be accounted for when uh, dealing with survival models. And maybe uh, this is just the starting point in the field to, to further discuss this with the, our peers in, in the big conferences. Yes. Great. Thank you. So I guess my final question is sort of, the blue sky thinking question, and um, I'll come first to you, Juan Carlos, for this one. If you could have unlimited money and access to the data for all myelofibrosis patients anywhere, everywhere, what would be the one question um, or piece of research that you'd want to do to, to try and forward our understanding of prognostication in myelofibrosis? Well, I, I would uh, create a, a huge data set of clinical and molecular data and I will ask this data set not only about survival, but about uh, risk of acute transformation in the in the in the next uh, in the following two years after the, the the clinical factors. And with this, I think we could improve much better uh, our uh, transplant decision making based on on prognostic uh, data. And I think this this actually 
can be performed in the in the next years. I mean, it's not a chimera or something like that. Brilliant. And, and to you, Adrian, any, anything else you'd want to add to that? Uh, yeah, I, I would try to add some, as Juan Carlos said, I, the key is to add more information, surely. But I would also try to add uh, histological information. We can now uh, uh, digitalize the slides of the bone marrows and extract features, both quantitatively or even complex patterns that can only be uh, derived from uh, computer vision tools, which are very complex, that can also add some prognostic uh, relevance. I could also include um, follow-up data so that we can um, uh, make the model more dynamic. So a patient after two years can re recalculate the score according to the previous evolution and make an expectation of survival for the coming two or three years. And maybe I would also try to put this into correlation with the response to uh, uh, disease-modifying agents such as JAK inhibitors. Uh, this could be also of, of interest. So a multi-functional uh, approach, Brilliant. ideally, obviously. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. And I guess when you're dealing with sort of such, uh, it's almost like you're, you're dealing with a nuclear button option of, of oh, do we do we go to transplant or not? And it's such a massive question that I guess anything that's going to help along the way is 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 going to be um, worth worth investigating. Um, that's brilliant. Well, thank you both. I, I feel like we've learned a lot today about, I guess, thinking about this question of transplant decision making, learning about the possibilities um, of machine learning. I think learning about challenging orthodoxies, as you have by showing the full blood count, can sometimes give you as much, if not more, information than than genomics. Um, and to think about some of the road ahead and, and some of the things we've got to be a bit careful of in, in, in complex models like this. So I'm really grateful for, for your um, input. And I just want to um, highlight to any of our listeners that the paper is available on the Hemisphere website to have a read of and to learn a bit more. Thanks all for listening. And we'll be back with another Hemisphere podcast episode soon. Mm -hmm.